Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss The Godfather Part 3. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And James here. We're going to finish up the Godfather series that we're doing. We did part one and part two already. Today is going to be on the Godfather part three. And also Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone, which was the new edited uh, version that um, Francis Ford Coppola made. About, what was that, 2020? He yeah, came during the that? lockdown. During the lockdown, he re-edited it and spent like a year doing it. And it's a little different. We'll get into that in a little bit. So The Godfather Part 3 came out in 1990 on Rotten Tomatoes. It is at 86% critic score, 75% audience score. IMDb, it is a 7.8. Metacritic, it is 60%. And it follows Michael Corleone, now in his 60s, as he seeks to free his family from crime and find a suitable successor to his empire. This film had seven Oscar nominations with zero wins. I overall think this is a very underrated movie. It doesn't deserve the hate it gets by a lot of people. It's obviously... Not quite the cinematic masterpiece that part one and part two are, but it's still a very good movie. We grew up, I uh, I had an opinion on this movie before I ever saw it, that it was just really bad uh, because uh, it, these two iconic films and then the third one just ruined the franchises. Kind of like what people always said about Godfather part three. It's absolutely not in the same quality as the first two. It's a different level, obviously, but it's still a very good movie. It's still a very good mafia movie. There are a lot of issues with it. We'll get into that as well. And it's not the same caliber of film. I think part of there are a couple of things that right right off the bat, uh, Coppola did this movie for money, just like he did ironically the first one for money because he had made a film before this, a couple of years before this, and uh, his production company bundled most of his money into it, uh, and that movie tanked. And so he was desperate for some cash, and then uh, Paramount was like, let's make Godfather Part 3. They knew he was desperate, and they squeezed him. And so that's why <laughs> he like actually— Corleone squeezes everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why he made this film, kind of like a cash grab to basically save his finances. Um, so that's also like the, I guess the uh, artistic integrity wasn't fully there, although he did make a very, I, I think the movie is very good. And also I, I think the biggest glaring difference between this film and the other two is uh, the cast. You're missing uh, Tom Hagen especially, but it didn't, because there weren't as many of the previous characters that we had seen in the other two films, it felt like a kind of like a different movie. It didn't really feel like it was in the same realm of those stories so i think that a completely new cast nearly entirely new cast aside from talia shire and um al pacino and diane keaton otherwise it's a completely new cast of characters true i think what's so strong about the first two are the phenomenal lead performances part one is obviously brando and pacino part two pacino and de niro as well as all the supporting characters and part two has probably some of the best acting it had five Ask Oscar nominations for acting just in that one movie. Whereas part three in Coda, you know, Pacino's back as Corleone, but he's a different version of Corleone. And, you know, Pacino, he didn't agree with the interpretation of, of Michael Corleone in this film. But obviously he's like, fine, I'll take the five million dollars. We'll make this as well. Even though he wanted he wanted like seven million and six percent of gross. And Keep in mind, five million is always the budget of the first movie. And this is 1990. So yeah. it's still a lot of money. It's so obviously five million is probably what, like 10, 15 million. Easy probably around today. 15. Yeah. yeah. So I think everyone in this movie did it for the money. And again, it's still a good movie in the sense of that, and besides the fact of that, but still, I don't think the Corleone, the interpretation of Michael Corleone is exactly what I would imagine for part three of the storyline, because, you know, you could say, obviously, maybe having kids changes everybody, but he already had kids at the point in part two, he was, but like to say, would Corleone, would Michael be a man of grief and guilt and want to try to buy his soul, save his soul Maybe. Who knows? But, you know, it's an interesting take. I think I agree with Pacino that I would have gone a different direction with Corleone in his later years. And also, like, we have those two great characters in the first two films, besides the supporting cast and supporting characters. Andy Garcia is great as Vinny Mancini. I think he's an awesome character. But he's Sonny. He's Santino. Of course, there's a transformation by the end of the film where he becomes more like Michael. But for the most part, we have Pacino playing a lesser version of Michael Corleone. And then Vincent Mancini isn't as great a character as Vito in the first two. 
But I will say there, uh, one of the improvements on the characters is Kay has a great interpretation in this film. Diane Keaton had a lot more to do. And her character was much stronger than she was in the previous films where she was a victim of Michael. Now she's taking control of her life and now she's basically not allowing Michael to have any kind of power over her. So I think that's definitely an improvement in terms of uh, the first two to the to this one, uh, the strength and growth of her character as yeah, well. She has decisions that get made for the family for, yeah. in terms of what Anthony, little Tony, wants to do with his life where she ha- asks Michael to let him go of the family business and his grip and follow his own path, which is definitely a great character transformation for her as well. Also, Connie has more to do in this film. She's kind of like a consigliere role in this yeah. film where she's part of the family business. She helps Michael with advis- uh, advising uh, opinions about the family business and makes decisions as well. And she assassinates a rival Don. Yeah, which is pretty BA. Yeah, it was it was great. And her godfather. She had she she has a great transformation arc from from one to three. So there are good parts of this movie and you know cons for sure, which we'll get into. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shouts on the show, weekly bonus episodes that all patrons have access to. Godfather tier patrons get their own personal patreon episode oh, yeah. and we also do a monthly zoom call which the godfather and i drink your milkshake tier have access to we also launched our podcast masterclass online course last year so for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show the, the link is podcast masterclass.teachable.com or go to our website raiders of the lost podcast.com it's right there on the home page thanks for tuning in around the world wherever you're listening now, let's get back into The Godfather Part 3 and Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. And this movie, it, it, even though it's not perfect, it does have a lot going for it. It has excellent cinematography, uh, breathtaking production design. The sets are amazing. Uh, Rome was great to see. The Corleones in Rome and in Sicily. The music, again, sensational. And the cast is very talented, a very strong cast, although the characters don't quite feel as strong. But I think the, the production elements are all there. And then Al Pacino, obviously being one of the best actors of all time, carries this movie on his shoulders once again. Uh, I think all in all, the production of the film is sensational. Now, if you haven't seen Godfather Part 3 or Coda, we're about to spoil it starting now. You know, there's a significant ending. So in Part 3, I want to go over the differences between Coda and Part 3. And again, Coda is the re-edit with new footage and less footage. So the differences first start off with a theatrical cut is running 13 minutes shorter than the original theatrical cut. So Coda's a little shorter than part three. In the original theatrical cut, Michael dies at the end of the film. We see him in the last shot. He dies as he slumps over. The orange falls out of his hand. Um, and after that, that happens after Mary gets shot. But in the in Coda, so after Mary gets shot in Coda, the film ends with a shot of Michael where he's still living and he's old, living in a solitary well, lifestyle. So let me let me correct you. It's the same shot, but in the in the original theatrical cut, Coppola holds the shot and then he collapses in that chair. Whereas in the Coda shot, he cuts before he falls. Yeah, so it's the same shot. Same he's shot. sitting alone yeah. in the chair, yeah. and yeah, we just don't see it cut with him slumping over. Yeah. And also a difference in Coda at the ending. So besides not seeing Michael die, is Coppola cuts in a shot of Michael dancing with his daughter Mary from the opening sequence at that, uh, whatever you would call it, the the event, the that he's, celebration, the, the yeah, celebration the, the award for the donation yeah. that he's made, and it shows you know him thinking about the woman of his life who's probably hurt the most, you know Mary who's died, Kay who's estranged from him now, and Apollonia who he lost in the past. So it's more of a a guilt and grief ridden Michael Corleone that we're seeing here. And also, the, it opens differently. So in the opening of the original theatrical cut, uh, Coppola starts with the, that ending shot of Godfather Part Two with Michael looking out on the lake in Lake Tahoe. That's how he opened Godfather Part Three. But in, and then and then there's the scene with the Archbishop um, talking about the the money he's donating to the Vatican. But in Coda, it just starts with that meeting with the Archbishop talking about the meet, talking about the donation, which I think is a better way to start the film because. For this interpretation of his character where he's already starting out with uh, Michael not being so um, haunted by the past right now, but more focused on becoming legitimate. Yeah, it opens with the line, Don Corleone, I need your help. And that opening scene with the Archbishop, which happens about 40 minutes in, 
in part three, the original theatrical cut. I think it's a lot stronger to open it up here because we get a great sense of where Michael's at in his characterization. Now he's working with the Vatican. He's like squeezing the Vatican for money, although he doesn't realize that they're squeezing him for money at this time. Uh, Another change from Coda from the theatrical cut is Coppola trimmed a number of scenes involving his daughter Sofia Coppola in her portrayal of Mary Colleone, whose death is supposed to add that heavy emotional weight at the film. And her her performance got a ton of criticism, still does. I think that's maybe why he cut some of the footage out of her for Coda. I think she's fine in this movie. I mean, Sofia, she's not known for being an actress. She's a tremendous filmmaker. And she was 18 at the time, and it was just a last-minute decision because Winona Ryder was supposed to be playing Mary Corleone. She was there. She flew in two days before shooting began and just suffered uh, a spell of exhaustion, so she couldn't come to set and end up dropping out from the film. So it was like a last-minute, we need somebody, and he wanted somebody young. And Mary, I mean, Sophia was already there on set visiting during school break, so they just threw her into the role, and they went with it. Yeah, I I used to... I mean, she's been made fun of for decades about this performance, but she's not an actor. And you can understand the situation she was put in where Winona Ryder, because Winona had done like back-to-back movies and then flew here to do this movie like right after another one had just finished shooting. So that's why she um, was exhausted because she just did – she was going to do back-to-back-to-back movies and this was going to be another heavy production. So Yeah, she got there two days after finishing work on Mermaid in America. Then she flew to Rome. And I know people think like, oh, acting, like they get paid so much money. It's not that hard. It's it's, When you're shooting a movie, you're working up to 14 hours a day for several months straight. That's a lot of work. And so you can understand why someone can get – um, emotionally exhausted, also being the star of a movie, that is a lot of pressure to take on. I'm sure the anxiety, just even when you're not working, that must weigh on you heavily, especially her being a, a, a star, a young star in the 90s, rising star at that time too. And so Coppola was put in a crazy situation where they either shut down the movie or cast someone within a day. And I think he just did what he had to do, and Sophia, I think, was just being a uh, a loyal daughter to try and save her dad's production in his movie, and agreed to do it. And I, like you said, she's I mean, she's obviously the weakest part of the film, and her performance is noticeable. It's it stands out. It's it can be pretty distracting when you see her acting opposite these heavyweight actors like Garcia and Al Pacino. But ultimately, like you can't knock her for like trying to help her dad out in a big situation. Because a lot of people said it was nepotism at first, but they didn't realize what the story was with Nona Ryder. So I think Coppola and Sophia um, were obviously blamed for like using nepotism to try and make his daughter famous. But in reality, he was just trying to salvage the mess that had happened because Winona backed out last second. Exactly. Sophia Coppola never wanted to be a famous actress. That was never her goal in life. Her goal in life was to eventually become a filmmaker, and she's an Oscar-winning filmmaker and and one of the best working today. So it's kind of like the Corleones. It's the family business. Coppola's got a family business here. Godfather's always been a family business. Yeah, I mean, he's... The, his sisters in his sister's, sister's Talia, and then the yeah. music was done by his, his dad. His dad, he, he he coded the music in the second and third. No, the third one, uh, Nino Rota. I don't think he didn't do this. Oh, one. not at all. Yeah, so oh, it, wow. it was just uh, his his father. I can't remember his first name, last name Coppola, obviously. <laughs> and then it's like, I have a day to shoot this scene. We need lines done by Mary tomorrow. Sophia is here. She's had experience working on sets. She's been on sets around her. She's been around sets her entire life. She's probably very confident. No problem in camera. She's a teenager. I believe she was doing acting at high school and like drama classes. She was also and, in small roles yeah. for like friends of her father. Like she voiced Fra- like a character on Frank and Weenie, Tim Burton's original short and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so I, I think she's fine. I, you know what? Her amateurish acting brings a naivety to Mary, which I think is accurate to the character as well. It, it it does work in the scene when she's in front of the crowd speaking at the party because she's very nervous and uncomfortable. And that's what like most people are like in front of crowds when when public speaking is one of the greatest fears of people, even if even if they don't know it because they never done it. But when you speak in front of a group of 200 people, most people become extremely nervous, lose their train of thought and just become very uncomfortable. So it worked in that scene. In the absence of Robert Duvall, like Anthony brought up earlier, as Tom Hagen is really felt in this film as he was obviously the consigliere. 
He was a part-time Don of the family. And he's essentially, Michael Corleone calls him a brother in the second film, whether he's using that to manipulate him or not is your interpretation. But, you know, he's a very strong and moral, emotional counterpart to Michael in the first two films. And the reason why Robert Duvall did not come back into the film was really money. Uh, He was offered a million dollars by the studio, by Paramount, which he turned down. In order to recreate his role with Tom Hagen, Duvall did not feel that the proposed salary was commensurate with that of Al Pacino and Diane Keating. Al Pacino was getting $5 million, Diane Keaton was getting $1.5 million, and the character of Tom Hagen was subsequently written out. Duvall later defended this opinion, explaining that making money was the only reason to produce the God, that Godfather movie after so many years, which is accurate. It's just to make money. You know, it's kind of like cash a, grab, like cash grab. Like we see a lot basically every every month this year, this, every week, this <laughs> year and decade in Hollywood is a constant cash grab. You know, it's unfortunate. And then they kind of tried to supplement the role a little bit by having Tom Hagen's son, Andrew Hagen, is, is in the film. He's a he's a priest who ends up working at the Vatican and also... Uh, Tom Hagen's wife is in the film, but it's so odd when Michael goes and says hi to them and Tom's not there. And he has a new lawyer as well. And the actor, I mean, he's fine, but he's not Robert Duvall. Like, you don't, I can't even remember the guy's name in the movie. And he, there's nothing quite memorable about him, whereas Duvall has always had such a commanding screen presence, even in the other Godfather movies, around that gigantic cast of heavyweight actors. So, I think that it was a mistake of Paramount to not give Duvall what he wanted. They underestimated how important he was to the story, how important he is to Michael, and how important he was to fans of the movies. Uh, I think Tom Hagen is absolutely one of the favorite characters for everyone. He's essential. He's part of the Corleone blood family. Even though he's not blood, he's essentially blood to the family. You know, loyalty is as thick as blood for the Italians and and Sicilians. You know, he's committed to the family for 40 years, and when you have a new lawyer... It just doesn't like when he's sitting with his lawyer in these in these scenes. It's like that. This lawyer is kind of a stranger. He's not a part of the family. It's like Michael he can't really trust this guy. It's not someone who wants to see everything go go as well as possible for him. And not to say that every decision or piece of advice Tom Hagen has from Michael and the Corleones and his family is always the right thing. It's still great to have a moral person in Michael's ear. The discussions they have about the situations and decisions that have to get made by Michael are really some of the best scenes in the first two films. Yeah, 100%. And so, oh, oh, sorry. I was going to say the budget was $54 million and the gross was $136 million worldwide. So it made money, but it's clearly probably not enough for Paramount to want to continue the franchise any further. They could have bumped it up to $60 million to pay Robert Oh, Duvall. for sure they could have. That would have been fine. And, he probably and I'm, sure, I'm sure if he was in the trailer, people would have been more likely to see it. The movie would have been better. Knowing, And then I think people would have more likely been wanting to see it if they knew that Duvall was in the film as well. Because if he was in this, he would have been like a co-character lead with Big Michael Corleone yeah. for sure, which would have been interesting. It would have been him, Vinny, and Tom, which I think would have been a, a much better storyline. As much flack as this movie gets, I think, I think it's a very good interpretation of Michael's character for the most part in terms of the theme of the movie, which is Michael is atoning and suffering from his because of his sins like this movie is about the suffering of michael corleone um whereas the other two were about the rise and fall of his power this one is him um paying for his sins and he suffers a lot in this film and ultimately he suffers the loss of his daughter by the end of the film and i think coppola is saying that there's no way that Michael could ever buy his way into heaven. There's no way that Michael could ever do enough repentance to make God forgive him. The heinous acts he committed in the past, they are unforgivable, unforgivable, and he must suffer because of it. So, yeah, Michael's much older now, much wiser. You know, he even makes a joke about that. He makes jokes in this movie, and you see him smile, which you hadn't seen him do before joining the family business in part one, you know, when he's with Kay, and he's actually in love and enjoying life, and he doesn't want anything to do with the family business. But this fi- this film is Michael trying to rid his soul of guilt and grief with these generous donations, and he's trying and effectively makes the Corleone family completely legitimate. And that's his goal is to have this legitimate family business that he can pass on to his daughter and his son. Unfortunately for him, his son, Anthony, played by Frank D'Ambrosio, who's a very accomplished opera singer, doesn't want anything to do with the family business. He dreams of being a professional opera singer, which he does achieve in the third act of the film. Whereas Mary, played by Sophia, is very much loves her father, 
wants to be part of the family business, is hesitant because of the things she's heard in the past. But now that she believes him that it's going to be a completely legitimate business, she'll be a part of it. And the difference between Mary and Anthony is Anthony knows that Michael killed Fredo, whereas Mary isn't sure if the stories are true. She, talk, she talks to Vinny about, asks Vincenzo, is, is it true that he really killed his brother? And Vincenzo obviously lies to spare her pain. So that's a reason why Mary is still trying to... Um, build the relationship with her father because she doesn't fully believe or understand everything that he did in his past whereas Anthony is rejecting his father because of he knows everything is true plus Tony was the oldest child of Michael yeah. and Kane so he was a kid and so he probably he had a great I'm sure he loved Fredo but yeah and, yeah, and he has a lot of memories, I'm sure, of things that happen around the house, especially he probably has a great memory of the shooting and stuff like that, whereas Mary was a younger child. She was a toddler, if not a baby, so she may not remember too much about the things that happened in the past. But I'm sure Tony, Anthony, has a great memory of the horrific things he's seen in his past, which is why he wants nothing to do with his father's business and much, I mean, barely anything to do with his father in general. Every family has bad memories. <laughs> <laughs> let him go. So Kay convinces Michael to let him go, which he eventually uh, succumbs to. There's an amazing shot in this movie um, regarding Kay, because like I said earlier, her character is in control of her life, finally. She's ostracized from Michael, and then when she does interact with Michael in this film, first at the party and then at the train station, uh, she does she keeps her distance and she, she remains defensive. But then she does open up to him a little bit later on when he's showing her Sicily and her and uh, his his father's home and then the the estate that they have in Sicily they have that nice dinner together which ends up um, turning into something negative. But in that scene, so Michael and Kay are sitting at that table and there there's a nice spread of food that was laid out for them and you know they're making plates and they've been spending some time together in Sicily and it, it's, Kay is definitely loosening up around Michael. And they have a, a, a cathartic moment in a way, uh, an emotional moment, a connection. And even Kay says she will always love Michael um, in a certain way for the rest of her life. And then um, one of, and then a, a local goes to he, he arrives and tells Michael about the the killing of his father, of his Don. I mean, and then it's Don Tomasino yeah, Don, who hid Michael in Godfather it, Part Two. Yeah, and his, I mean Godfather Part One. Sorry. Yeah. So after that assassination, this guy goes to Michael and they speak in Italian and and Kay doesn't know what they're saying, but she can tell from the aggressive tone and that something's going on within mafia related, mob related. And this is a great moment. I think it's the best moment of the film because it ties to uh, the famous scenes in the first and second film. The first so the first film, the famous ending when the door is shut on Kay's face. She's she's shut out. She's she's um, basically put off from the situation. And then in the second film, um, same thing happens. Um, door uh, Michael closes the door on her when she tries to visit the kids, shutting her out. But in this case, Kay sees this mafia conversation going on. Michael's like trying to saying he's he's legitimate, and now he's clearly still connected to what to these criminal activities. She, she's repulsed by it. And then what she does is she stands up, and then. Um, Coppola films it from the room where Michael's standing and we're, we're watching her through the doorway and then Kay walks oh, out, walks to the left and then her ca she physically moves to the left and then walks behind the wall. And so this is a, a, a connection between the doors being closed on her. She's exiting frame and the wall ends up uh, covering her but she's closing herself off from Michael. She's leaving and she's closing the door this time on Michael. Because she says what she says. It never ends. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I think it was a great connection to her character, her most famous scenes in the other two movies. The Sicilian nature and all these films of revenge and, and getting revenge for loss uh, of 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 pain of, of, of – yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, lost. <laughs> so this film has a couple great points and plots going on. So Michael Corleone, besides being older and wiser and going through this stage of guilt and grief and trying to rid his soul of his sins, he's very vulnerable. He has health issues. He has diabetes. He's very stressed out, and the stress is taking a toll on his entire body, which we can probably attribute to, to the diabetes he has. Michael is also trying to cut himself and cut ties with organized crime forever, and that's what he's doing when he's basically like buying out the other dons in that scene before the helicopter attack where he's like, y'all, 
Got 50 million checks. Some of you a little less. Some of you a little more. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. You guys handle yourself. And that's where Joey Zaza gets upset because he didn't get part of the cut. And and but that's that. Sorry to interrupt. There's a moment of conflict because the ma the Dons the Mafia they want in on his deal with the Vatican because they want to be leg- they want legitimate money too. Yeah. So so Michael's whole entire plan in this film is to become completely legitimate. And even though he's given the money, they want part of that as well. They want to be legitimate. They want to make real money. And the whole plot with the deal with the Vatican is so fascinating. And it's based loosely on real events that happened in 1978 with the Pope of John Paul I, who only was Pope for, I think, 31 days or something like that, which is the the shortest papal reign of all time. And the the papal banking scandal of 1981 to 1982. And also this theme of a new generation taking over. With, what, do, do you think that Pope was assassinated? Who knows? I mean, people believe he was murdered, but the conspiracies of – there are different conspiracies of why he was murdered, but uh-huh. who knows Because the Pope why, in this movie is. I know. That's yeah. right. That's based on that. Yeah. It's loosely based on it. It's crazy. Same, same that's po- crazy. Same Pope. Yeah. Same I name. never knew he that. Like I didn't too. know that was real. And so Archbishop Gilday, who is the archbishop we meet in the beginning of the film in Coda, but who is the Vatican banker, he's in charge of the Vatican ba- Bank, and he's – as corrupt as they come. And him along with Licio Lucchesi and then also Alto, Don Altobello. So the, the the men in that room when they have that meeting in the Vatican, the first meeting in Rome. They've created an enormous money laundering scheme where they've stolen hundreds of millions of dollars from the Vatican Bank. And in order to fixed this error and so that no one notices what happened, they're trying to get Michael Corleone to invest $600 million into the Vatican Bank, which will just be a direct deposit to the Vatican to fix all the losses that they say they've made because of bad decisions, but it's really just to hide all the money that they've stolen. Michael Corleone doesn't realize the swindle until later on in the film. And so the Godfather is resurrecting these two stories of the Vatican, which you would like to uh, forget the scandalous collapse of Banco Ambrosiano in the controversial 1984 claim that a newly elected Pope John Paul I was murdered after he began to clean up the bank, the Vatican Bank. So in the film, the International Immobilier was a European real estate company. Its properties were worth over $6 billion in the 1970s, making it the largest landowner in the world. The Vatican owned 25% of this interest. Michael Corleone bought a large block of that stock becoming the company's single largest shareholder. But then the Vatican asked him to buy even more in their stake in the company, which was worth $600 million. And this acquisition would make Corleone control, give Corleone control over Immobilier. However, the Immobilier deal was really an elaborate swindle concocted by the company chairman, Licio Lucchesi, who we assume is just in charge of the situation. He had stolen that fortune from the Vatican Bank with the help of Archbishop Gilday and accountant Frederick Keinzig. And Keinzig is the guy with the glasses who hangs himself at the end of the film, or he gets hung at the yeah, end yeah. of the film. Um, and well, I think he gets he gets smothered, su- and then they, they hang him then they to make him, it look like suicide, which actually happened to a real person connected to this entire situation oh my God, in the real world. Crazy. And they intended to use Michael's investment to cover all of their tracks. And then their plan was to assassinate Michael Corleone so that they could com- completely cover their tracks. So they'd have the $600 million in the bank to cover the losses, to hide the fact that they stole all this money from the Vatican Bank. And they hired the that like farm farmer assassin with his son to Mosca. take out. Yeah, Mosca, which is a great – I love how him and his – it's like the family business – and he's like bringing his son on this on this mission. Like imagine like the train. Like that's a movie. Like a a, fa- a, a father assassin. They live on a farm, and he like trains his son all his yeah. life to be a perfect assassin as it well. It could be. And it's really interesting to watch Michael with uh, the archbishop bishop because they're in a negotiation. It's just wild to see the Don Corleone negotiating with the Vatican and the Vatican banker. In a way, he's more powerful than ever. Yeah, and yeah. he, the Vatican, the Archbishop ups him up to $600 million, which Michael concedes and agrees to because Michael thinks that this is going to be a good thing. He's helping out the the most powerful religious organization on the planet, the Vatican, the Catholic Church. So I will say the original version, which I had seen a, a couple of times before we watched CODA the other day, the first time I saw it, it was confusing. It was very confusing. And that extra 30, 13 minutes that he had in that film— there were a lot of scenes that just made the movie stretch on, um, and I got lost the first time I saw this movie. 
And then the second time it cleared up a little bit more. And then watching Coda, it was very clear everything that happened. So the original cut, I will say, is weaker because it's very it's overstuffed with scenes. And it is extremely hard to follow. Whereas Coda is much simpler and more streamlined of a story. Now, the first problem that comes with this deal in the situation is that Pope, Pope Paul VI, who is gravely ill, must approve the deal. But he's too ill to approve the deal. And Michael has already sent the money to the Vatican and deposited it into their bank account. And then Pope Paul VI passes away. And so basically what they say is they one of the Italian men goes, as they say in America, all bets are off. So the situation becomes much more complex. Let's get into that complexity after our intermission, for sure. Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in men's grooming. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout to get up to 20% off and free shipping on your entire order worldwide. We've been talking about their Lawnmower 4.0 groomer for over a year now. This thing is exceptional. It has a 7,000 RPM motor. It's skin safe, waterproof, wireless charger, has a built-in light. You can use this in the shower, fellas. This is the greatest tool you'll ever use for grooming needs. Also, their ultra premium collection is the ultimate wet goods bundle. It includes deodorants, body wash, two-in-one shampoo, conditioner, hydrating body spray, and a free set of Manscaped lip balm. I highly recommend joining the over 2 million men worldwide who are trusting Manscaped with their grooming needs. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Loss at checkout to help the show. You'll also get 20% off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. Are you a fan of movie posters? There's no better place to get your posters online than at movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Movieposters.com has a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable. Everything from The Godfather to The Batman and Spider-Man No Way Home, classics like Casablanca, Heat, Fight Club, whatever your poster needs are, they got you covered, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and and backlighting for your posters. Again, head on over to Movieposters.com and use our special promo code, Raiders 10 to get 10% off your order today. Now let's get into our intermission and begin with our movie quote competition. I will go first, Anthony. Let's hear it. Terry, you of all people should know, in your hotel, there's always someone watching. Hmm. That's a good one. Hmm. Say it again. Terry, you of all people should know, in your hotel, there's always someone watching. Hmm. Is it John Wick? No. I don't know. Ocean's Eleven. Oh. That's Tess talking to Terry yeah, yeah, Benedict, yeah, played yeah, by yeah, Andy yeah, Garcia. Yeah, yeah. Good one. Stump me. Okay, here's my quote. My tolerance for your smoking in the mansion, notwithstanding, continue smoking that in here, and you'll spend the rest of your days under the belief that you're a six-year-old girl. Hmm. That is interesting. What is that? Continue smoking that in here, and you'll spend the rest of your days under the belief that you're a six-year-old girl. I don't know. That's Professor X warning Logan to stop smoking a cigar. Oh, in that's the a good line. Yeah. Which movie is that one in? Two. X two. X Men United. <laughs> We're united. Actually, that's the third one. Last. Last wait, stand. Wait, no, X two. No, oh, yeah, you're right. You're I'm right. right. You're wrong. You're right. Unsubscribe. <laughs> All right. Guess this movie release year. John Q. 2000. 2002. <sighs> Good one. Guess this movie release year. Monsters Ball. 2001. Correct. Nice. Nice. Good one. All right. Movie pop quiz time. Who is the only actor in the entire Godfather trilogy who plays a main member of the Corleone family? but never received an Oscar nomination or win. John Cazale. Yes. Everyone else has either a nomination or win. Yeah. Chino, Diane Keaton, uh, Talia James Shire, Can. James Can, Robert Duvall, everyone. They he all should have gotten nominated for the second one. Should have. He's, He's great. great. Five movies he was in, all nominated for Best Picture. All right. Here's my quiz question. Who voiced Catwoman in the Lego Batman movie? Zoe Kravitz. Yes. Let's go. Good one. 
All right, what do we got for uh, haters this week? Anyone good? Any yeah, we unsubscribers? Got we got some haters. Oh, I hope so. No unsubscribers. I, I couldn't find any actual haters this time. Oh, everyone's been, you, so everyone's, you, just, you just lied to us. Everyone's been very kind lately. I think it's uh, they just love us so much. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Batman Who Laughs. How can you mention Mark Hamill but didn't mention Zach Galifianakis from the Lego Batman movie as the Joker? Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Is he? Oh, that's right. Uh, Dawson Jalakier said that um, – Jalakier – he said that, what's the difference between, uh, what's, what do Denis Villeneuve and, Villeneuve and I have in common? Uh, and I said, what? You both, you, we're both French-Canadian and you pronounce our names incorrectly, which is a hate crime, so unsubscribed. And then we have, um, the, our fans made a bunch of memes for our roast episode, and then Guy 17 wrote, no Dune memes, unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> and then Preston Gear wrote, not a single foreign film in the Empire Magazine's top 100 films of all time, unsubscribed. <laughs> And then there's a top comment that really cracked me up. <laughs> I, I posted a clip about Catwoman, and we were talking about how impractical Halle Berry's costume was. It's just like a bra in, in leather pants. And uh, Jamel is Mr. City wrote, what's the problem? <laughs> Walks up to Halle. I just stole something and need to be wrestled to the ground. Her, not again. <laughs> <laughs> and biggest support of the week, we had a new Godfather tier patron today, right? This morning. Jimbro Braggins wow. just joined our Patreon Godfather tier as a fan of the show, and we appreciate your support so much. Incredible. He, he picked an excellent movie for us to review in our podcast episode what, for him. What movie did he pick for his Godfather episode? Primal Fear. Oh, hell yeah. With, uh, with uh, Edward Norton and uh, Richard, 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 Richard Gere. Richard Gere. We cleared that up last yeah, week. <laughs> so Jimbro, Bra- Jimbro Baggins. Thank you so much, pal. You're the best. Your, your free sticker is on the way, and your episode will be out in a couple of weeks. Now, on this day in film history, today is March 17th in 1960. One of the first French New Wave films, Breathless, directed by Jean-Luc Godard, is released in France. In 2000, Aaron Brockovich and Final Destination are released. In 2006, V for Vendetta is released. In 2017, Beauty and the Beast is released. And happy birthday to Kurt Russell and John Boyega. My streaming recommendation is Crimson Pink, which just got added to Netflix. Did I say Pink? Crimson Peak. Uh, Guillermo del Toro film. Love it. It's pretty great little ghost story. A lot of fun. Visually stunning. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool movie. I picked The Fly, David Cronenberg's body horror movie on Amazon Prime with uh, the... Uh, incomparable Jeff Goldblum. What a crazy Jeff movie Goldblum. that is! It's wild. It's he turns into a fly. Like it's yeah. it's nuts. It's crazy. It's pretty gross. It's very like uh, cheesy, but but fun. Like nineties, eighties horror. Yeah, like it's so yeah, fun. It's great. It's a good time. Now let's get back into the Godfather Part Three and Coda: The Death of Michael Corleone. And I would say we should probably start talking about Vinnie Mancini, who is. Probably you could argue the lead character of this film besides Michael Corleone for sure. And he steps up as the new Don in this movie. But at first, he's anything but a Don. He's a total badass, I think, played by Andy Garcia. (laughs) And Vinny is Michael's nephew, but he's also the illegitimate son of Sonny Corleone, Michael's brother, and Lucy Mancini. Now, Lucy Mancini is the woman that Sonny was having an affair with that we see in the wedding scene in Godfather Part 1. And also when Sonny is the acting Don and he has that little affair situation with her when he's at her apartment. Yeah, and it's actually the same actress who plays Vinny's mother in this movie. And so Vinny was born before, I mean, after Sonny was killed and assassinated. And Vinny is a troublemaker. He's a black sheep in the Corleone family. He's exactly like Sonny. He's he's a loudmouth. He's a womanizer, overly confident, vain, but more loyal than anyone you would ever meet. And a lot of people don't really think that he's a Corleone. Although eventually throughout the film, we learn that he really is Santino's son. But other mobsters are like, this guy's he's just saying that he's Sonny's son. He's not really a Corleone. So he's he's up against a lot of tension with the other uh, members of the mafia. Especially Joey Zaza, who he has beef with because they're operating in the same neighborhood. And now, Michael tries to make peace between Vinny and Joey Zaza at the opening sequence of the donation ceremony and dinner. And inside the room, it's a crazy moment where when they go to hug and Michael tells them to make peace, Joey's Vinny bites Joey, a chunk of Joey's, Joey's ear off. Sorry, Vinny bites a chunk of Joey's ear off, which is crazy. And, you know, at first you think this is going to cause Michael to banish him from the family. And like, I can't believe you did this. But if you watch the movie, it causes Michael to take Vinny under his wing. And I think that Michael secretly liked what he did to Zaza. Because it's something Michael used to be all about retribution and revenge and taking out your enemies. And so, and also, 
the connection to his brother, I think, is important to him as well. Like, this is my brother's son. He is the last, like, actual member of our bloodline. And so I want to take him under my wing. I'm not going to be the Don, but maybe this guy could be the future of the family for the illegal practices. And I think he obviously saw a lot of his brother in in Vinny at this moment oh, yeah. and took him under his wing for that reason. And at the reception after the opening ceremony, when Vincent bites Zaza's ear, it happens similarly in the opera house during Anthony's performance where a character bites another character's ear. This amuses Vinny during the scene and it's not random because biting an ear and drawing blood stands for fighting to the death, according to Sicilian custom. So it's like, I'm, I challenge you to a duel about biting your ear, basically. Oh, that's what, really so that's what Mike Tyson was doing. <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know if that's what Mike Tyson was doing. <laughs> and so also, Michael and, and even Connie are very unhappy with how Joey Zaza is running their turf. So Joey Zaza has taken over the territory that the Corleones used to run in New York, but he's lot, he've, he's running into ruin and he's messing the place up, filling, filling, it, filling it with drugs. It's become a very different area from when the Corleones were in charge. Plus, Vin Zaza's whole persona is very flamboyant he has this hunger for publicity he's like the most famous gangster in the war in the country basically like when they're at that dinner with all the dons michael talks about how much wealth he's brought everybody then joey zaza says i've made you all money and then michael's like joey zaza will make you famous He'll give you publicity, but that's pretty much all he'll be able to give you. Yeah, he's like, he was on the cover of Esquire or like Fortune 500. Like, he's been on magazines promoting himself as a gangster. Michael was always working in the shadows, and so it's very different. And and Joey is very upset because he wasn't, in, he wasn't involved in the casino deal. And so when Michael sells the casinos and he pays all the dons what they what they are owed because of their investment in the casinos with the Corleone family, Joey Zaza is left out because he wasn't a part of it. And that makes him extremely angry that uh, he wasn't involved in this money. And also no one seems to appreciate what he's done for them. And Joey Zaza, he wants revenge for the situation. And he walks out that door of that meeting saying, you've all made enemies and you've chosen the side. And then we have the crazy helicopter machine gun assassination of all the Dons, except Vinny, with his quick thinking, is able to save Michael Corleone and get him out of that situation. And so that puts the stress of the situation, you could argue, puts Michael into a diabetic coma. You know, again, like I said, the stress of his entire life has been taking an extreme toll on his entire body. And, you know, he even the Cardinal mentions that later on during his confession. And so while Michael is in this coma, Joey Zaza and Connie give him the approval to take Vincent. out— I mean, sorry, Vincent. Vincent and Connie— give Vincent the approval to take out Joey Zaza, which Michael did not want to happen because as Michael is telling uh, Vincent, Joey Zaza would not be capable of this kind of action. He doesn't have the ambition, the resources, or the balls really to pull off an assassination of all these dons at the same time. So Michael understood that there's no way it was Joey Zaza pulling the strings here. There's someone higher up. But Vincent, because he's a hothead, because he's like his father, makes a mistake here and takes out Joey Zaza, which ended up being... A benefit for Lucchesi and Archbishop Gildoy because they're the ones who wanted to kill uh, Michael. Then they're the ones who yeah. wanted to take out jo Joey Zaza yeah. at some point. Yeah, so Vincent did it for them. But the Joey Zaza assassination scene is really great. I love this because it's during the Italian Street Festival, and when you watch it, it's so similar to the assassination by Vito during on Fenucci during that Italian film festival. It's the same kind of moments, and you, it's really cool to see how much has changed in Hell's Kitchen in the, in the past several decades. But we have a lot of the similar shots of the uh, the members of, of the, the church just holding up the statue of Mary and everything like that, and then Joey Zaza just becomes a total badass when he takes him out <laughs> on the horse. It's a great sequence. So this movie, it upped the ante on the violence big time. Um, much more action, and the violence was better done um with technology and the filming capabilities like it's a lot better than it was in the 70s Vinny also has a great scene where after he bites joey's ear joey sends two hitmen to his apartment and joey just i mean and, and Vinny takes them out like single-handedly no problem it's a really great moment for us to understand Vinny's character and really it like makes you root for him after this moment because wow this guy can handle himself and he seems like a real corleone and he seems so much like sunny he's very cool he's pretty damn cool. but also he starts sleeping with his cousin yeah, which, which is, complicates things. Which is complicated because Michael wants it to be forbidden because, first of all, they're first cousins. But second of all, as he tells Vinny, 
Your enemies will come after those you love, and it's too dangerous to date Connie. I mean, to date. Sorry, I keep messing Mary. Up. To date Mary. You're talking too fast, bro. I know. I'm just too slow excited. down. It's too dangerous to date Mary because Mary will always be in danger, danger, and come under fire by Vinny's enemies. Although Michael, being the, the the genius strategist that he is, he uses that as an opportunity to make. Uh, to make Vinny spy on the rival Don by using that as motivation to convince the rival Don, hey, I want to run away with Michael's daughter, but he won't let me as a, if I'm a part of my uh, part of his family. So let me join your family, work for you, so that me and her can be together. Yeah, Michael having Vinny be a double agent is really clever, but it's great for the audience because it introduces maybe a sense of ambiguity of. Whose loyalties does Vinny truly have? Would he want to try to betray Michael and become the Don of the Corleones too quickly? Would he use this opportunity to get power over Michael? But then we eventually learn he Vinny infiltrates Lucchesi and Don Altobello to discover that there is betrayal coming from Michael. And we learn through this situation that Vinny would never, ever betray Michael Corleone. I think he looks to Michael as a, like he's a god, honestly. Honestly, and, yeah. And I think Vinny... He more than anything he wants to be like Michael, he, exactly. And he and he eventually becomes the new Godfather, the new Don. Uh, although it will end in tragedy, his first day as Don will end in tragedy. It's pretty bad. And um, but he does rise to that level. Uh, Michael, although he doesn't want Vinny to become a Don, he wants him to stay legitimate. He can't persuade him against what his real desires are, so he's he gives his approval. And allows Vinny to ascend into the throne of being the new Godfather. And Vinny has a huge transformation in this film. It's similar to Michael in Godfather Part 1. Like I said, he's like a hothead. He's just like Santino in the first half of this film. He keeps making mistakes going against Michael's orders, especially when Michael's in the temporary coma. But Vinny constantly gets advice from Michael throughout the film. You know, he's like, when he snaps out, he, Vinny is told by Michael, don't ever let anyone else know what you're thinking, even if it's someone you trust or you think you trust. And by the end of the film, once he becomes... It's the same thing that Vito did to Santino in the exactly. first movie. By the time uh, Michael makes Vinny Don before the opera scene while they're in Sicily, Vinny is completely changed. He's very calm, very collected, in control of his emotions, in control of himself, and he has a very similar appearance and, like tone of his of his expression to michael corleone at the end of, end of godfather part one and godfather part two extremely well dressed too uh, because he, because he was wearing leather jacket the first time oh you dressed for the pot yeah exactly <laughs> so they were obviously they they saw that he didn't respect them because he's wearing like a casual leather jacket but then by the third act of the film he's wearing these sharp suits and looks like a don looks like a real mafioso and like you say he's in control of his emo emotions he um, without hesitation um, breaks up with Mary and tells her, love somebody else. Like a cold-hearted because he ha what he wants more than anything, his true passion is to be the, be the godfather. And so Mary, even though he loves her, he's like, get out of here. I'm, I'm rising to the power. This right. is what I really want. Now let's get back into the Vatican corruption stuff like that. Let's, let's explain it a little more. So again, we have the Archbishop Gilday. Gilday is it Gilday? I can't remember what it was. Just call him Gil. Gilday. So Gilday working with Licio, Lucchesi. Lucchesi and, and Gilday were afraid that Vatican officials would notice the missing hundreds of millions of dollars that they were stealing. And they again convinced Michael Corleone to purchase the Vatican's 25% share in Immobilier. Even though Michael was already Mobiliere's largest single shareholder and controlled six seats in the company's 13-member board, this would make him the controlling interest of Immobiliere. And then again, once he transferred the money to the Vatican Bank, Lucchesi revealed he had no intention of turning over control of Immobiliere, so he ordered Gilday and Kainzek to stall the deal. And this time, Pope Paul VI succumbed to his illness and passed away. And Lucchesi offered to help clear the deal deadlock on condition that Michael do business with him and through and Lucchesi through his ally Don Altobello made that deal with Joey Zaza the boss of the Corleone's family crime operations in exchange for Altobello's and Lucchesi's backing of his bid to become the new head of the five families Zaza agreed to have Michael killed and although Zaza's assassination attempt put him into a position of power if it succeeded Lucchesi and What's in uh, Altobello were probably going to assassinate Zaza anyways because his flamboyant media hungry nature would have put their entire plans in uh, in the crossfires of, of the world. Yeah. 
a fascinating take uh, behind closed doors of these enterprises and these businesses and uh, the amount of money that's at stake is insane. And this crazy amounts of money. It's it's so fascinating. And why would Don Altabello, who is Connie's godfather, who worked with Don Vito Corleone, he's a friend of the family. He's you know he's he's part of the Corleone family basically, and was a close ally of Michael until he betrayed Michael. Why would he betray Michael? Even in the opening of the film, he brings Michael a one million dollar donation so that he can be part of this foundation and they can be partners in in this deal somewhat. He wanted his name on Michael Corleone's name. And you could probably say it's because Michael wanted to disappear from the organized crime and wanted to make a legitimate world for himself and not be a part of this of everything that the Corleones built. And like we said, the mob, the head mobsters, the Dons did not appreciate this at all, even if they got paid. They want, they're just like the other mobsters in part one wanted in on Vito's contacts and political allies the new these new dons wanted in on michael's legitimate business and he wouldn't let them in and now don altabello he's the one who hires like he had they said the famous assassin in sicily mosca who according to vincent says he never fails at assassinations and this is the assassination attempt on michael at the opera during anthony's performance and also at the same time connie gave him a batch of poison cannolis before the opera began for his 80th birthday prison but because they all knew that don altabello had already betrayed them and was going to assassinate michael at some point they poisoned the cannolis and i love when connie watches altabello succumbing to the poison and dying even though she sheds a tear it's pretty hardcore for her yeah she's connie watching with the binoculars like yeah eat them up Eat them up. I mean, those cannolis look delicious. <laughs> they look very good. <laughs> this, you know what this sequence reminds me of? I think that Tom Cruise used it as inspiration for the opera sequence in um, the the one of the uh, Mission Impossible movies. Oh, maybe yeah. Yeah, that opera sequence where he's him and Rebecca Ferguson's character are trying to, she's trying to assassinate someone. He's trying to stop it from happening. It looks similar. It felt the same. The co- the cross cutting between the opera. And the action going on behind closed doors. Yeah, it's a pretty intense sequence. It's full attention because this Mosca assassin is just killing everybody behind the scenes. Yeah, he's like the Terminator. Yeah, those twins, they stand nothing against him, which remind me of the twins in the Batman as well. (laughs) The twin bodyguards. But he's a hardcore assassin. He's taking everybody out. Unfortunately, he fails at killing Michael Corleone and unfortunately kills Mary Corleone, which is the most tragic part of the film and maybe one of the most tragic parts of the entire trilogy. And this is what Michael deserves because of what he had done in the past. This is his penance. He deserves to suffer. He is not a good guy. He is a villain. He's a bad person. He's done terrible things. And so Coppola is saying, Michael Corleone, he has to suffer. And also, the reason why he recut the ending to show Michael surviving and not dying at the end is to show that uh, in that great ending, the line that com- comes on the screen, I can't remember what it says, the Sicilian line about like... Chantani. Yeah, and it, it lasts... 100 years. 100 years. So he's saying, Coppola's saying, Michael deserves to continue suffering it forever. And even though we don't see the death of Michael Corleone in the film Coda, death, the death of Michael Corleone, you could say that this is a death sentence. You know, he's lost everything at this point. He's lost his family, the only thing that was keeping him alive. You know, that's all he really cared about was his children. And he lost Mary to the, goal, to, to the bullet wound. She's dead. And we can assume that Anthony, his son, will never talk to him ever again. We can assume that Kay, even though they confess their love to each other again, will never talk to him again. Who knows if Connie will ever talk to him again? Probably, maybe. Who knows? But we can assume that he's just going to live out his days completely alone, secluded, and just waiting to die by himself, which is a death sentence in, in, a, in a way, the death of Michael Corleone. It's worse than death. Probably. Yeah, if you think about and it. And now, this all relates also to... Michael's confession to Cardinal Lamberto. So Cardinal Lamberto is a true priest, an actual honest man who Don Tomasino recommends Michael can talk to to confess his the situation to with the Vatican because he's afraid of talking about the corruption in the Vatican to anyone. He doesn't know who's corrupt or not. And so during that confession with Cardinal Lamberto, Michael... He explains to Michael that he deserves to suffer for his sins, but you can be redeemed. And I think it's pretty ironic that after this point, Michael kind of becomes a hand of righteousness against corruption in the Vatican. Unfortunately, he is unable to save him and Vinny, unable to save Pope John Paul I. 
from the assassination on him, which they knew was coming, but they were able to get revenge for his death, which is pretty crazy. Obviously, the accountant who was suffocated then hung from that that bridge, and then Archbishop Gilday gets shot and assassinated at the Vatican, which is pretty wild. And also, Lucchesi gets taken out by one of Michael and Vinny's men who goes in with no weapons at all and uses Lucchesi's glasses to kill him in the jugular. I Oh, it's so brutal. I also, I also think that Mary's death is a result of Michael's actions in this film, not like practically, but in sense in the sense of him deserving to be punished because even though on, it looks like he's being legitimate and like you said, acting self-righteously, which he is, he also unwillingly grooms Vinny to, beca- to become a perfect Don. I think subconsciously knew he wanted to be a Don and also allows him to be a Don. I think that that's him still saying, I'm still involved with the Mafia. By allowing Vinny and giving him the permission to become the godfather, he's basically saying, I- I'm still involved. I'm just not there anymore, but I'm allowing it to happen. I'm allowing the Corleone family to still be corrupt and oversee criminality. So in a way, he never became illi- he never became fully legitimate. And I think that ties into the excuse that Michael constantly gives about being in the in the mob and running the becoming the Don of the Corleones and then continuing it is he's always saying, I'm I'm doing it to protect my family. Everything I've done is to protect Kay. It's been to protect my children. I'm grooming Vinny to become Don and I make him Don to protect my family, which inevitably and ironically ends up with destroying his family yeah so, so it, it's always an excuse that he has he, he was never legitimate even though he said he was i think that he's still acting he's using Vinny as a way as an outlet for him to act as the don still in a way this film you know it's again i think it's a little better than people think i love the sequences in italy obviously it's really beautiful to be back in sicily and it just harkens back to the first two films so much. And I love being in, in at the opera house. And, you know, what's an opera without some tragedy? Could have some terrible things happening in that situation. But it is tragic. And, you know, Pacino's scream at the end of the film on the steps after Mary gets shot is horrific. And, you know, I like how Coppola gets the shot of it silent first. And everyone's just watching Michael scream out in pure agony and pain. And then we get to hear him screaming. And it's just a, a painful scene to watch. Yeah. And ultimately, I agree with Al Pacino and him not um, agreeing with this take on Michael um, because, that, like you said, that's why he didn't want to sign on to the film initially because he didn't feel that Michael would ever feel great regret or remorse for his actions in the past. And I agree with that because we analyzed the first two films and he is a cold, calculated killer. Um, and I think that this was pretty much a big 180 for him to be to be a desperate family man. And to show so much love for his family and for other people, I felt it. I agree with Al Pacino. It was not quite what I was expecting for the third chapter. Yeah, they wanted the audience to now empathize with Michael Corleone, which I get. I understand yeah. you want to go in a different direction, but I think it would have been a totally more badass and cool movie and, and better. If story. you want, if he became Don of the Vatican, if he's the same, yeah, you know, he's the same guy. If if, if he becomes. The Godfather, he was maybe he's lost a step, but then he becomes what he once was at the end of the film. Yeah, that would have been, I think, an epic, epic third ending to the trilogy. Yeah, but fi- five million bucks—that's like that's a lot of money. Fifteen million dollars. I'll, I'll hey, good amount of cheddar three cheese. months of work. Okay, no problem, Francis. Well, because Francis, uh, he threatened him where if you don't take this, then I'll just. Oh, if you want the seven million with six percent gross, then I'll just open it up with your funeral, mm-hmm. and we can do something else. Yeah. So Pacino's like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> So overall, pretty solid movie. You know, it's it's good. It's you know, not Godfather Part One, not Godfather Part Two, but you know, it's it's very good. It's good. It's it's very good. Yeah. Now, what do you got? Some trivia going on? I yeah, can see you. I you got some. Anxious to say some stuff. I'm ready. Go. So Al Pacino and Diane Keaton actually dated on and off for several years after making the first film together, ultimately breaking up for good when Diane Keaton wanted a serious long term relationship, and Pacino did not. He wanted to be a bachelor. This led to a lot of friction when they first arrived on the Godfather set for part three because they hadn't actually seen each other for several years. And like their characters, they were able to get past the issues of their past in real life. Catherine Scorsese, Martin Scorsese's mother, has a cameo in The Godfather Part 3. She is one of the women who stops Vincent to complain about the poor care of the neighborhood. She can also be seen in another gangster film, Goodfellas, in the larger role as Tommy DeVito's mother. Sophia Coppola. Sofia Coppola had to redub about 20% of her original dialogue for the final cut after a disastrous early screening for the New York press in 1990. 
where many of the critics singled out her performance as being distracting and bad. According to an interview in Entertainment Weekly, she said her greatest vocal challenge for the role was getting rid of her Valley Girl LA accent and correctly pronouncing the name Corleone. Francis Ford Coppola once admitted that he was still unhappy over the final result of The Godfather Part 3 because of lack of time to write the script. According to him, he wanted $6 million for the writer, producer, and director fee in six months to write the script. Instead, the studio gave him only $1 million in fees and only six weeks to work on the script in order to meet the Christmas 1990 release date. He also regretted that the character of Tom Hagen had, been, had to be written out of the script because the studio refused to meet Robert Duvall's financial demands. Again, a lot of times studios just want to get that release date. Six weeks yeah. to write a script for a two-hour and 40-minute movie of the Godfather trilogy. It's, it's not a lot of time. Yeah. So, I mean, he did the best he could. Because of the popularity of the two earlier Godfather movies, Frank Sinatra reversed his anti-Godfather stance and expressed interest in playing Don Altobello. He lost interest because of the size of the paycheck for the role, and it went to Eli Wallach. Sinatra got his role in From Here to Eternity when Wallach backed out because of the low pay for that movie. I got Eli Wallach on my wall right here. Oh, yeah, there he is. He's uh, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The the Ugly. <laughs> um, that wraps our entire film of The Godfather Part 3, and that wraps the Godfather trilogy on the show. Wow. I'm sure we'll talk about these at some other point in time, but it was a lot of fun to finally talk about these movies. We've been saving them for a little while, and we really hope you enjoyed these amazing pieces of cinema as much as we do we have some excellent episodes coming up very soon so keep tuning into the show thank you to all of our patrons for supporting the show and see you next time raiders of the lost podcast is a mirror image production sound mixing done by jacob kosler opening music by chase jackson